<clears throat> if you've noticed, all the songs that we sang today are aimed at your encouragement. That's not to say that all the other songs every other Sunday is not aimed at your encouragement, but all of them are themed. And as we prepare the bulletins, as pastor prepares the bulletin, as I prepare the bulletins, we aim to keep the songs in step with the theme of the text that we will be preaching from. Now, there are two kinds of people in this world, the righteous and the wicked. And the longer that you live the more likely that you are to witness the realities of this world. You'll see its hardships and its joys. You'll see the pains and the laughter. You'll see the wonders. You'll see the sunrises and the sunsets. And one of the hardest things to explain to a person is to explain to them the fact that the Bible, the scripture, draws a definitive line between two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. The scripture is clear. The Lord is the one who makes these distinctions. And it's from the Lord that we see his holiness at work as he makes all of these distinctions. When it comes to creation, for instance, he does, he, he creates all of the world, and he makes things according to their kind, and then he begins to draw these distinctions, and when he creates man, he creates them male and female. He doesn't create hybrids so that there's some sort of confusion, but he does create distinctions so that we see the holiness of God at work. The Lord created all of the earth and everything in it, and as we trace the historical line of God's redemptive work throughout history, Ultimately, what you'll get at is what we see in Psalm 37, that there is the righteous in this world and there are the wicked in this world. And in Psalm 37, when we get here, when we look at the entirety of the psalm, what we'll realize is that there are three parties in this psalm. There's three parties in this psalm. The first party are the righteous. The second party is the wicked. And then the third party is the Lord himself. There are two things that the righteous and the wicked have in common. The first is that they are created in the image of God. They're able to reason. They're able to think for themselves. They're able to understand and know the things around them. But the second thing that they have in common is that both camps come from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So in this church, we have a diversity of people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different socioeconomic statuses, and they, we come together because of our Lord who brought us here together. And the wicked have the same thing in common except they don't have a Savior that draws them together. There are people from all walks of life. And in our text this morning, there seems to be some sort of anxiety running and coursing through the veins of the righteous. It runs its course in those who have believed God at his word, who have taken him at his word and taken him at his promises. And these are the ones that David now addresses. In fact, it seems as if he's directly talking to you. And to a degree, that's true. The Spirit moving David to write the words of Psalm 37 is now speaking to you. Why is there anxiety running through the veins and coursing through the veins of this person in Psalm 
37, where David has to repeatedly remind this person to not be anxious. I think there are two reasons for that. The first reason is because there's a tendency in all of us, in every single one of us, to look at the world, to hold the world in one hand, and to know and to look at the promises of God in the other hand. And for whatever reason, the world and all of its shouting seems to overshadow what we remember about the Lord and what he said and what he's promised to us. In fact, you can look at Israel's history where the Lord repeatedly says, I am giving you this land and they're all complaining that they're, go- they're all going to be destroyed. That's the first answer, I think. The second, and we actually started going through the Psalm and family worship. We've, after our lunch meals, we go through Psalm 37 or breakfast. And one of the things that I've repeatedly said to my family, to uh, Elise as well, is, One of the amazing powers of sin is its ability to cause you to forget. And this is why throughout the history of Israel, the Lord says, remember, remember, remember. There's an amazing capacity to sin. Remaining sin, indwelling sin causes us to forget. And this is why we need the commandments of God's word. We need the instruction of God's word repeatedly. So how does the Lord deal with anxious people? If you're anxious this morning, how does the Lord deal with you? Well, we, we sang from Psalm 103 this morning, but David says in Psalm 103 that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't deal with you according to your sins. He works deeply within your soul to prune you, to cut away all of the things that are inhibiting the communion that you have with him. Sometimes those are through trials. Sometimes those are through hardships. Sometimes those are through the breaking off of friendships. And then there are times when he sweetly encourages you so that the passage that you read a thousand times somehow floods your heart with this emotion and you can't do anything but hold back tears. And for this reason, he tells you, to come to him when you are heavy laden and weary and that he himself will give you rest. But the second way that he deals with anxious people, like all of us, at some point or another, we will be anxious at some point, unless you're a robot. Your data from Star Trek. I don't know if any of you remember that. (laughs) But the second way that he deals with us is through his firm commandments. He commands us what we ought to be thinking. He tells us what we need to be doing. He gives us firm commandments so that not that we are to be cast down by the commandments that he gives, but he is reproving us as a father. He is telling us the direction in which we should go. He's guiding us and pointing us in the way that we should behave and the way we should act. And all this is so that we are brought more and more into conformity into the image of Christ. So that from the core of our being, all of us, mind, our minds, our wills, our affections are all brought into conformity to Christ likeness. And we look like Christ at the end. That's how he deals with anxious people. And one of the most difficult things for us to do is to read God's word and to do it. But Mr. and Mrs. Pride, sitting in the pew, will raise their hand and they'll say, I don't know what's wrong with these people. I read God's word. 
I read God's word and it's so easy for me to do everything that God says. I always do what pleases the Lord. To which I respond to Mr. and Mrs. Pride. If it were that easy, then we wouldn't need the commandments of the Lord. And you also underestimate the reality of indwelling sin. The Lord consistently commands his people. He tells his people what they ought to be doing. And why am I harping on the idea of commands? Well, because in just 11 verses, we have at least 10 commands. And that's the thrust of the beginning of this psalm. David is giving commands to the people that he's speaking to or the person that he's speaking to. And so this text is written by someone who knew what anxiety looked like. In fact, he had trouble in his own house. His sons tried to, at some point, kill him or take the throne from him. He himself committed adultery and then he covered it up with murder. And then for a whole year, he kept this inside until Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you are the man that's guilty. David knew what anxiety looked like. And presumably now he's got some miles on him. He's got some miles on him. He's lived a little bit. And now he is telling probably someone younger than himself how they ought to live. And so the antidote to anxiety is found in the biblical command to consider the deliberate care that God has for you. What is the antidote to your anxiety? Think about what the Lord is telling you and how he cares for you. Why? Because every believer that places the full weight of their confidence in the Lord will always sat- find themselves completely satisfied. Every single believer that throws the full weight of their confidence in the Lord will always find themselves completely satisfied. And the reverse is true. Every unbeliever who does not throw their full weight and confidence in the Lord, but in themselves or something else, is, is never going to be satisfied. And you know that's true. You know that's true because at one point that was probably you. That was all of us. And so this morning, what we'll do is we'll look at just three things that we see in, in the first 11 verses. The first thing is we're going to consider just very quickly the state of the wicked in verses 1 and 2. And then from there, we'll launch into all of the commands that we are given in verses 3 to 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, we'll consider the end of all things. So just three stops along the way. You know, I love my train analogy because I grew up in the trains in New York City. And so these are just three stops that we're making. But all of it is aimed at throwing your confidence fully on the Lord. And ultimately, what I'm asking as I approach this text, and I hope you're asking the same question, is what is it that you're telling me and why? Just the what and the why, and you see David answering both questions. So let's look briefly at the state of the wicked. Look at me with, uh, look at me, uh, look at your Bibles with me. Uh, don't just look at me, look at your Bibles. <laughs> look at what David says. We know it's a Psalm of David, so the identification is there for us. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers. The first thing that he's getting at is he's telling them to not be worked up when you see people who are doing wickedly in this world. In verse 35, if you 
glanced down, he actually gives a personal eyewitness account of what he has seen. He says in verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not found. And the idea is, as king, he's lived a little. Again, he has some mileage on him. He's been through some things within his own family. He has the kingdom now. And now he's observing, he's glancing at the landscape of all of the other kingdoms. And he has seen wicked rulers, ruthless tyrants in the way they treat people and how they've gotten to their positions of power. They have accumulated for themselves the power that they have And it's been a very slow and steady process. Imagine sitting in front of the shoot of a sequoia tree and just waiting all the days of your life to see it grow 300 feet. You'll be waiting a long time. But in a sense, that's the the way that David is describing what he has seen as king or in his own lifetime. He has seen these men who have taken root in the earth, who have taken root in their kingdoms, and they have grown and grown and grown, and they've done wickedly, and they've gotten away with it, and they've bribed people, they've bribed judges, and they've gotten away with it. And they have become more and more cemented, calcified in their own wickedness. And what does David say? Don't get worked up. The ESV says, fret not. Now, we don't use language like that all the time. We don't say to, you don't call your, your cousins or your aunts and say, fret not. No. <laughs> but the literal meaning is, stop getting worked up. In other words, the idea behind this word, fret not, is that you are working yourself up to a frenzy where you can't even control yourself. So you have to be told, stop it. Stop. And there are twin temptations that are here in just verses in, in, that are here in just verse one. There is this restlessness, kind of like a horse that can't control itself. So you need the bridle of instruction to be placed in the teeth of that horse so that you can control it. Stop being restless, he says. That's the first temptation. But the second temptation is don't be envious of wrongdoers. Why would you be envious of wrongdoers? Well, really, the, if you go deeper into this word envious, it's stop being resentful of them. And David knows that there is a tendency on all of God's people, on the part of all of God's people, to look at the rulers of his time and to not only get themselves worked up, but then they start resenting them. Then they start chattering about them. Then they start making fun of them. Then they start saying all kinds of nasty things about these rulers. And David says, stop it. Why? Verse 2 comes after verse 1. And he says, For they soon fade, they will soon fade like the grass, and wither like the green herb. Notice the time stamp on the timeline of the wicked. Starts with an S, ends with an N, and has two O's in the middle. That's what I tell my daughter. Soon. It's going to be soon. That's not soon on David's watch. That's not... It may not be soon, like five minutes from now. It may not be 15 minutes from now. It may not be 50 years from now. But he says, soon, on God's timeline, on the Lord's timeline, they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. You see all the luxury that they're living in. You see all the beauty that they're living in now and how they've gotten to the place of power. And now they're flourishing like a beautiful garden. 
And David says, it's not going to last. Even if I die, it's not going to last. And so from there, he tells us the state of the wicked, but he doesn't stay there. He doesn't want us to stay there. He doesn't want us to harp on the wicked. He wants us to immediately go now to the character of the Lord. And the, and the, the next uh, several verses focus us on our, our attention on the character of the Lord. And this is what we should be paying attention to more and more as we go through God's word, as we study God's word for ourselves. What is this saying about the Lord? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. What is this saying about the Lord? And so from there, he goes to the commands that we are given in verses 3 through 8. There's at least 10 commands, or 13 commands, but three of them are repeated over and over again. So the first command, what's the first command? Verse 3, trust in the Lord. This is a rock-solid confidence. This is a confidence that is based on intelligently thinking through what God has demonstrated in the history of the world. As a king, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can write it down, look at what the requirements of the kings of Israel are to be. According to Deuteronomy 17, in fact, I'll read it quickly for you. Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses writes what... The qualifications are for the kings. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And here we have in verse 18, the instruction. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all of the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So the idea is as king his guiding line, his, his, his charge is to take the first five books that Moses has written and to write an entire copy by hand so that you memorize what the Lord's will is as king. So you learn that it is the Lord who created all things in Genesis, that in Abraham he has promised all of the families of the earth will be blessed through his seed. In Exodus you learn that there is a deliverer that has delivered the people of God out of Egypt, creating a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. In Leviticus you learn how to be in the company of God as he teaches you how you must approach him. And in Numbers you learn the leadership of God and in Deuteronomy you're told all over again what you need to be doing this is what a king needs to do and so this is where that trust comes from many of us don't trust in the lord because we don't dig deep enough into his word and so when trials come our way and we're flooded with anxieties 
we are restless and we work ourselves up into this frenzy because we have not gone back to God's word to listen to what he has to say. Has to say. And this is where it all starts. Trust in the Lord. Second command, do good. Same verse, do good. All of the good works that he is telling this person to do are based on the character of God. So that First Chronicles, we, we see David saying, For the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. We see it again in places like Psalm 136. The Lord is good. And so this is based on his character. So doing good around the world means that you are doing all of your actions in reference to the one who defines what good is. That is what doing good means. A good work, according to our confession and according to our scriptures, our, uh, our Bibles tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It must be done by faith. Faith in what? Faith always takes an object, and the object is the Lord. So you base all of your works on the character of God. The more you get to know him, the more you get to see him, the more you get to understand who he is, all of your actions filter through the grid of what you have known about the Lord. Because you know two things at least. One, he defines what's good. And number two, you are always before his face. Whether you're on Amazon or you're in the grocery store in 7-Eleven, you're changing the oil on your car. You're always before him. So he says, do good. Command number three. He says, dwell in the land. This is a, something that Jeremiah told the people who were captive in Babylon. To dwell in the land. Build for yourself houses. One of the most wicked things that I've heard people say is that they look at the world, at the landscape of this world, and they say, I'm never bringing kids into this world. That's a wicked thing to say. Imagine Noah saying that. The Lord flooding the earth, destroying the wicked, not necessarily dealing with the root issue just yet of sin. So his sons were sinners and so was Noah. And what does the Lord tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Noah could have said, no, you haven't dealt with sin yet. So I'm not bringing any more kids into this world. But he obeyed. And the idea behind dwelling in the land means that you live this life not running away and building a bunker for yourself in the middle of nowhere and secluding yourself in isolation because you're afraid of what's happening out there. But it's firmly trusting in the Lord so that God's character takes your jelly-like feet and places them in the, in the, in the rock of Christ's character. And he turns your jelly-like feet into steel beams that go deep, deep, deep into the character of God. So that when the winds of life come, as we sang in Christ our sure and steady anchor, you're not blown away like a little leaf in the wind. You can look at adversity in the eye and you can say, my hope is in Christ. So you dwell in the land. But then he says, which a lot of people have given their own interpretations of what this means, the fourth commandment is, or the fourth command is, befriend faithfulness. Literally, to feast and graze like a, like a cattle, like an ox, 
on the faithfulness, on the abundance of security that the Lord has given to you. So not only does he bring you into the land to dwell in it, so that all of your zip codes are foreordained by the Lord and you are there for a specific reason, but now he says live and feast on the security that the Lord has provided for you. This is his faithfulness. And then we get to the most famous, which there's probably hundreds of sermons just on verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is the second time that we see the word yourself. The first time is in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. What's the opposite? Delight yourself in the Lord. The idea behind this is it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing that you do. It's harder to see in the English than it is in the Hebrew. And I don't like pulling out the Hebrew, but the, the, the force of it is you are going back and forth between, with the Lord and you are not doing so in a way that's causing strife. You're doing it because you've tasted and seen that He's good and you want more and you want more and you've seen His faithfulness. You've seen that He's proven His character and you want more of that. And so you go back to delight yourself in the Lord so that all of the desires of your heart now are not to get a car, not to get a promotion, but to get more of him. So many times has this verse been prostituted to materialism. So that we say, delight yourself in the Lord and you will get that promotion that you're looking for. Delight yourself in the Lord and you'll get that spouse that you're looking for. Delight yourself in the Lord and you just might get that house that you've been looking for. No. Because when you get that house or that spouse or whatever it is that you're asking for, where is the Lord to be found? Nowhere. Ultimately, it comes down to a hat tip. Thank you, Lord, for giving this to me. I'm going to go on my way and continue to enjoy the gift instead of the giver. Delighting in yourself does not mean that we use God to get what we want. But we go to him to enjoy him for his sake. Imagine someone coming to your house and saying, man, I just wanted to spend time with you. What do you got to eat? (laughs) Well, I got something in the fridge. Cool. All right. I'll see you later after I'm done. Is that what you came for? You didn't come here to sit and enjoy my company? Yeah, we could do that. We could catch up on FaceTime. No. No. The Lord is not on call. Delight yourself is the command that he gives to you. The next command is commit your way to the Lord. Literally, roll off of your shoulders your burdens onto the Lord. Throw the entire weight of your life onto the Lord. Roll it onto the Lord. We have a similar passage in 1 Peter. Cast all of your burdens upon the Lord because He cares for you. Roll it off. In other words, anything that's going to cause you to get worked up into a frenzy, roll it off to the Lord. Give it to him. Pour your heart out is what the psalmist says before the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Again, here we have a repetition of verse 3. Trust in him. 
Trust in him. This is the second time. And whenever you see a writer, a biblical writer, repeating himself, it's for a reason. If you're Hispanic, you say things with syllables. If you're Hebrew, you repeat yourself over and over and over again. And this is the second time that he says, trust in him. Why? He will act. What's he going to do? We don't know, but he will act. And the context, the backdrop of all of this is that there are wicked people out there, ruthless tyrant. It seems blacker than black. It seems like it's getting to midnight. And there's no help in sight. And what does David say? Roll it all off to him. Trust in him. Commit your way and he will act. He will act. What is he going to do? Verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. He is going to vindicate you. None of us here in this room are here because we've decided to sign a card and say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. That might be in part true, but ultimately it was the Lord who drew you here. We did not pay a gold membership fee to get into the kingdom of heaven. We did not apply for a heavenly express credit card. We did not do that. And the Lord approved us. No, we are here by grace. This is why we read Romans chapter 5, that we have peace with God. We have been justified by faith and now we have peace with God. We have been brought in by the grace of God. You are here by God's grace And he is the one that vindicates you. He is the one that brings forth your righteousness so that everyone can see as as, as brightly as a cloudless summer day at noon. And for David and for other people, sometimes they never get to see that vindication in their own lifetime. But what does Paul remind us of? Or what does even our Lord remind us of in Matthew 24 and 25 and 1 Thessalonians 1, that he will come and he will separate the goats and the sheep and he will come to be glorified in his saints. He will bring the vindication and everyone will see it. And it's not your righteousness that you've done on your own. It is the righteousness of Christ by faith that you have because of what he has done for you. When he brought out the people of Israel, David knew this well. It was the Lord who vindicated his people. And there were probably a lot of people that were not so righteous in that community. But the Lord vindicated his people and his own name for all of the nations to see. So we have commit your way, trust in him. We have refrain from anger, forsake wrath. And then he repeats himself, fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. And the idea, again, is stop getting worked up. There's a tendency for us to look at social media and to get worked up about the political situation and all of the things that are happening in this country and across the world. We get information faster than David could ever dream of. He waited for runners, we wait for Twitter. Runners took three days, social media takes 30 seconds or less. And we have a tendency to work ourselves up. But David is saying, don't do it. Refrain from anger. 
Don't be angry. Even though they are getting their way, don't be angry. Forsake wrath. Leave it alone. Fret not yourself. Why? Because it only tends to evil. And this is what James says, that the righteousness of man does not produce, or the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, before we get there, he gives us the end of all things. So we have all of these commands, at least ten of them. Three, he repeats himself three times with fret not for yourself, fret not yourself in verse one, fret not yourself again in verse eight, and then again, fret not yourself in verse 10. Why does he say all these things? Because he knows, or in verse 7 and verse 8. Why does he say all these things? Because he knows that we're frail. He knows the condition of every single person he's speaking to. He knows your condition. And the Lord knows your frame. He knows that you are susceptible to being weary and to being worried about what's happening around you. When will you act, Lord? When will you vindicate me? When will you do what's right? When will you hear our prayers, Lord? Well, he will act. What is he going to do? The evildoers, he says in verse 9, shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. It's not those who by their power have seized the land who are going to inherit the land. It's those who are waiting on the Lord who owns all the earth that will inherit the land. And in just a little while, again, we have another timestamp. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. So here he tells us that you are the one looking carefully. And in verse 35, he's telling you, he's telling you that he is the one that did the investigation. So both you and David are doing the investigation as to where are the wicked. And David is saying they are no more. There's going to come a day when they are no more. But... The meek shall inherit the land and delight, here's that word again, delight themselves in abundant peace. That's the end of all things. The antidote to anxiety is deliberately considering the care that the Lord has for his people. Have you stopped to consider how he cares for you? This is not something that's native to us. We get up, we brush our teeth, we do our hair, some of us. And we put on our clothes, we go out, and we do what we do. But do we stop and think that the only reason why you have clothes on your back in a bed in your apartment or house is because the Lord has cared for you? Do you stop and think that when you wake up and you suddenly inhale, that it was the Lord that gave you that breath to draw from? Do you realize that even in your death, when you draw your last dying breath, that you will see the Lord seconds from that point? The Lord cares for you. And so, the Israelites did not understand this. There was an event in their history where they did not understand this. Twelve spies go into the land of Canaan. Ten come back with a complaint. They say, there's giants. We look like grasshoppers. We might be short, but they are tall and we can't do it. And two of them say, no, no, let's go in. Because the Lord has promised Joshua and Caleb say, no, let's go in. Do you know that 10 people's restlessness caused over 2 million people's anxiety? This is a lesson in learning to trust in what the Lord has said. It takes place in numbers. So it's about leadership. So this is a message to 
also leaders in the church and potential leaders, including myself. So I'm not exempted from this either. Complaining tends to go out like leaven and leaven the whole lump. Ten, ten, or ten people causing two million people to suffer in anxiety because of a bad report. And what does the Lord do? He deals with it by killing off the ten men. Then what happens? Numbers 14 happens. Everyone complains. They fold their arms and they complain and they raise their fists at the Lord. And they say, Moses, you did this. You are the reason why these men died. And the Lord sends a plague. You know what? We're going to go into the land, Moses. We're going to go and inherit the land that the Lord is giving to us. And Moses says, stop. Stop right there. Stop. Because you are not going in on your own terms. The Lord has not sent you. We don't care. The Lord has already told us we're going to go in. And what do they do? They suffer a horrible defeat because the small people of Amalek come and they destroy the people of Israel. And everyone's sitting in mourning because they didn't listen. This is the way of the wicked. But what does the Lord tell us? To wait on him, to wait patiently on him. Those who wait for the Lord sounds just like the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. Here it says land, and it's probably good that it's translated land, but when the Lord himself comes on the scene in redemptive history, the land widens to the earth. So all things, Paul says, are ours. So what if they try to take this land and this land? So what? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Well, our time is quickly coming to a close, but we've considered just three things, really. One, the state of the wicked. Number two, the commands that the Lord has given to you. Commands that are not meant to be ignored, but commands that are meant to be listened to carefully. And finally, we've looked briefly at the end of all things. And like I said earlier, there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's the righteous and the wicked. There's no in between. There's no little, there's no 50 shades of gray, like the world will tell you. There's no blurring of the lines. No, the Lord makes his distinction. And the sermon, this sermon is not intended to make you passive. Where you read these commandments and you're like, well, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad that I get commands. On with my life. No. This is intended for you to do something. If you, were to st- if you were to be stopped and asked on the street, tell me about the Lord. What can you say about the Lord? And the hope is that you would go deeper than he's my God and Savior. But you would tell him how he's a trustworthy God. That he is a triune God. A father who brings you from the courtroom into his living room through the work of a son who gave his life for you. His son who gave his life for you, who loved you and gave everything for you so that you would be righteous in his sight. And the spirit of God who takes all of the work of Christ and applies it to your heart so that when you see him say, I will never leave you or forsake you, you Truly hold on to that. This is what 
the Lord is commanding us to do, to consider his deliberate care. Why? Because everyone that pulls or puts the full weight of their confidence in him will always find themselves completely satisfied. Are you satisfied in the Lord this morning? This goes back two months when two months prior when Pastor Shishko said, Are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you? And sometimes you wake up and you say, No. Other times you say, Yes. But in those times when you say, No, I'm not delighting myself in the Lord, that's when you pray even more. That's when you seek out your brothers and your sisters even more and you say, Help me. And those of you who are Feasting on God's word, it is your responsibility to look out for your brother and sister and say, come, enjoy the feast and the meal that I have gotten from the Lord and his word today. Come. This is why the communion of God's people is so important. This is why meeting together is so important. David doesn't say delight yourself in the Lord as though delighting in him will mean that every traffic light will turn green for you and every bill will suddenly be paid. This is an ongoing delight even if the traffic lights are all red when you leave here, even if the bills are not paid just yet. David says, delight yourself in the Lord. He gives you his spirit who causes you to be joyful, to love him, to give you a peace that the world cannot give, a patience that the world cannot give to you so that we don't wait on politics and we don't wait on what social media has to say, but we wait on The Lord, we wait for him who is good, who will settle all accounts because he is gentle and lowly. We feast on his faithfulness and we exercise self-control by not working ourselves into a frenzy. Fret not. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you for the grace that we have received in Christ. Oh Lord, we ask and I ask that whatever was not helpful or profitable, that you would blow it away. Cause it to not stay. But whatever was profitable, sink it deeply into our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.